This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype from England is John McGregor. He writes short stories, novels, and nonfiction. Three of his novels, So Many Ways to Begin, If Nobody Speaks of Remarkable Things, and Reservoir 13, have been long-listed for the Man Booker Prize. One of the concerns of his writing involves the small details which make up a big picture. That is a focus in Reservoir 13, which tells the story of a 13-year-old girl who disappears in an English village. Rather than focusing on the disappearance, however, Reservoir 13 concentrates on the individuals in the community where the tragedy takes place and chronicles 13 years of the villagers' lives, moving swiftly from one point of view to another. We began the discussion talking about how McGregor became a writer. I was definitely not one of those kids who dreamt of being a writer. It never really occurred to me. I was a massive reader as a kid. I I was... You know, I was one of those kids who was always in the library and kind of, you know, worked my way around the the shelves of this particular local library and pretty much read everything that was there and would lose whole days to, to reading. But it never really occurred to me. You know, I, I mean, I, you hear some people who they were writing novels and stories and comic books and, and whatever, you know, from as soon as they could write. And that, that never really occurred to me. And it was only really when I was a teenager, I, I tried to learn the guitar and start a band. I tried to get the hang of photography. I tried to make films. I you know, tried all sorts of things. So I guess I kind of knew that I wanted to do something creative. And writing was kind of the last thing I tried. I, I, I failed at everything else. Yeah, so it was only really when I was at university that I started writing stories. And it was only really after I, I read um, Douglas Copeland's first novel, Generation X, which apart from being, you know, about all the kind of zeitgeisty stuff it was about, it was also just about the kind of value and pleasure of of telling stories. And I I really took that to heart. And was there a feeling you got inside? Because I kind of can relate to what that feels like when you try something new. I, You know, I'm like, well, maybe I'm the next Tiger Woods of golfing, and I just don't know because I haven't tried Mm -hmm. it yet. And, you know, Mm -hmm. you tried music and you tried you know, all these other artistic forms. Was there something that you felt inside when you started writing? I mean, to be honest, there was something that I felt inside when people started reading what I was doing. So I was doing a quite a creative degree at university. I was doing media production and there was a lot of filmmaking and there was a lot of having to write um, script treatments and scripts and proposal documents and all that kind of thing. And I suddenly realized that everyone else was finding it really, really difficult and, and was writing really badly and, and, and were not clearly getting their, their ideas across. And I I thought, well, hang on, if, if everyone else finds that really hard and I find that really straightforward, why am I bothering trying to learn how to use cameras that I find confusing? So that was the first thing. And then I, I did a lot of writing and kind of was writing short stories and feeling quite anxious about it and assuming it was, it was terrible. There were a couple of people I, I kind of accidentally on purpose left things lying around so they would read them and and their response was was really exciting and and that was when the excitement started for me was when I thought well this this turns out to be something I can probably do that this is this is going to be my thing and that was the starting point really 
So tell me about your latest book, Reservoir 13. It's It really tells the story of a young girl who disappears when she's 13, and she disappears in this village with all these reservoirs, and the story basically follows everyone in the village and the natural world in the village for years after she disappears and sort of chronicles the impact of this disappearance on this village. What was the impetus or the inspiration for this? It started really with a short story that I wrote um, quite a long time ago, maybe 10, 12 years ago, which told the story of the girl disappearing and and particularly of the, the village going out on a search for her the following day. And and in the story, it, it's just it's the villagers kind of spread out across the hillside, you know, steadily walking across the hillside, looking for whatever it is they're looking for, clues or evidence or, or something. Because for a long time, I'd, I'd been really struck with this idea. I'd, I think I'd seen, well, probably more than once, seen images on the news of, of something like that. You know, somebody disappears and, and you know, the local people are, are called out to volunteer to spread out in a long line and, and search for for whatever it is that they might find, and and I'd, I'd, something had really struck me when I'd, I'd seen these pictures that when you're involved in something like that, if it's not if it's not somebody that's, that's kind of you know personally relevant to you, you would start out on a, on an expedition like that being very kind of engaged with the seriousness of it and, and the tragedy of it and obviously you'd, you'd be very kind of serious and you'd be silent and you'd be just kind of concentrating and, and walking forwards and looking for what you were supposed to be looking for but these things must take hours and hours and hours you know the, the, the huge areas of ground that, that the police want people to to cover and at some point during the day you would inevitably kind of lower your guard and, and you would fall into conversation with the person next to you and you would start worrying about is it time to get home? Am I going to get home in time to feed the cat or walk the dog or, or cook the dinner? You know, and how long is this going to take? And my feet are wet and I'm actually a bit bored now. And you, just life would, you wouldn't be able to help life intruding on, on the kind of special seriousness of, of, of that. Um, and so that was what the short story was about. It was about life intruding onto this, this scene that was supposed to be serious and earnest. And once I'd written the story and once I'd published the story, I, I just, I had like a dozen characters um, I couldn't stop thinking about. And they, they kept coming back to me and I kept thinking, well, okay, well, what happens? I knew even with the story, I knew that the girl was not going to be found. I, you know, that it was just going to be a, a disappearance, not not a, a, a kind of crime investigation. It just, she disappears. And that's, that's the story. Um, but okay, well, what happens the next day? What happens a week later? What happens a year later when she hasn't turned up and the police have more or less closed the case and the journalists have long gone home? You know, what what is life like in the village then? You know, and or actually, what's life like ten years later? And I just it just was churning over in my head. So so that's that's where novels begin when things are churning over like that. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is John McGregor, author of the novel Reservoir 13. So when when I started reading it in the first few pages, basically you go through, you begin with them and the villagers in the parking lot, and you have this big picture of them at the moor. And then I'm not surprised that you studied some film because then you basically pan in. So you ha- you feel like you have this big picture and then you get down to the level of we're looking at individual kids in, in school. And so you move from the natural world in closer and closer and closer. I don't know if you viewed it like that, but that's how I saw it. And I'm just wondering if this was a very conscious move on your part and um if that helped you set up how you wanted to tell the story structurally? There were different techniques through the book and there were different ways I wanted to, to kind of move through the story at various points. And certainly his opening couple of movements were very visual in my mind. I, you know, I knew that there was, you know, the images that I, I, I actually had in my head that I'd seen on the news at various points were all kind of um, filmed from helicopters, you know, kind of aerial views of a search party on a moor and then the kind of the camera pulls back and you see the whole village. And I, I, I just had this very kind of visual sense. And I, as a reader, I quite like being helicoptered in to the setting of a novel. You know, as you kind of get a big picture first and you get a sense of the landscape and the, the, the layout and how things relate to each other. And then you kind of, you come in closer and closer and closer and then you, you, you're with a group of people and they're talking and, and off you go with the story. But actually, after that, what I was really interested in doing with, with, with the text and the shape of the text and the journey that the reader would, would take, everything's happening at once and everything's happening within time. Time time keeps moving in this book and, and I kind of set this structure up where each month only has a page or two dedicated to it and then we keep moving forward to the next month and the next month and the next month. So things happen very um, briefly. And I was really interested in this idea that you could give equal weight on the page to somebody taking in their washing and then some blackbirds laying an egg, some eggs, and then somebody's mother dying in hospital and then some kids getting into a fight down by the river. And you know, then it's just one thing after another because that's that's how life happens. And I was really interested in being very kind of literal-minded about that and, and, and seeing how that would work on the page. So basically, I couldn't summarize all the characters, but, you know, you go back and forth. Once this girl, it's established that she's missing, you move back and forth um, very, very quickly into different villagers' heads. And you have a group of teenagers. You have, you know, their parents. Uh, one of their parents is owns the guest house where the parents of the missing girl are. You have a couple who are married and end up having twins and you follow them from their pregnancy all the way through to the kids 
you know, growing up to being maybe in middle school, you have, you know, these two people that grew up there that are kind of in love and can't get it together exactly. Um, you have the vicar. Um, so you have all these these different characters. And sometimes, and, and you also have nature. Um, and, and that plays a big part, what's going on in nature um, in many of the scenes, whether it is, as you said, a bird having an egg or something happening in the moor or something happening in the reservoirs. Uh, you have protesters at the reservoirs. So how did you control the movement from as you were saying, you know, from one day to the other to the other, you know, you had so many choices to make about what character to go to, whose head to go in. What was that process like for you? Basically, I wrote all of the material first, completely out of any sequence. And then I then had a, a box of bricks with which to, not bricks, jigsaw pieces maybe, to then kind of lay out the, the, the text in sequence. So, so, so for example, I wrote the whole storyline about that couple who grew up in the village and can't quite get it together. I just I just wrote all of that and I knew it would take place over several years. Um, I wasn't quite sure exactly what the dates would be, but I, I wrote all of the text for it. And then I also wrote all the text about the blackbirds and I wrote all the text about the guy whose job it is to look after the river and the various kind of technical things he has to do to keep the river clean and full of fish. So I had all of these bits and pieces kind of stacked up in a, in a, in a ring binder. And then I said, okay, well, these are all the bits that are going to have to go in the first year these bits have to go in the second year and followed that through these bits need to be in january these bits need to be in the summer and just kind of i don't know i don't know what the metaphor is maybe it was like putting a quilt together you know where there's the sort of a i don't know much about quilt making but I, I i kind of feel like it's part very kind of technical and 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 definite rules and it's part kind of instinctive about how you lay colors out and you don't want a completely regular pattern but you want things to kind of complement and make sense it was a little bit like that, but it was a lot of fun to write like that because I concentrated on the, the writing first and then I concentrated on the structure second. And, and, and obviously the two things kind of blur together a bit, but I always feel like I sound a bit crazy when I, when I explain that process. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is John McGregor, author of the novel Reservoir 13. One of the things I, I wondered as I was reading this, so basically you have this commonality in everyone's life, this tragedy. It's It comes up on the minds of, of all the characters at some point, and it influences their lives. But yet at the same time, it doesn't influence their lives. I mean, they're just still living their lives. So I'm wondering about when you focus on the life of the village, and I don't mean this facetiously, but if you had just chosen... To, to show a village for 10 years, what would be the difference um, for you if you just showed life for 10 years or if you just showed life with a backdrop of this tragedy? Mm, that's already a good question. I think it's to do with the storytelling instinct and it's to do with ideas of, of drama. And I think you, you could take out the fact of the, the girl's disappearance from this novel and you could simply have it be a bunch of people in a village across 13 years. That's that's kind of unwinding the spring and, and letting all the tension out. And I think if you're asking a reader to read a novel for two or 300 pages, there needs to be some element of, of, of story and of narrative and of tension. 
And I think people are interesting. My, my, my starting point for as, as a writer is that everybody is interesting and everybody's at the kind of centre of their own stories and everybody has stories to tell about their lives. But often people are the most interesting when they're under some kind of pressure. And if you put characters under some kind of external pressure, then they reveal more of themselves and they learn more about each other. And so I think it kind of felt instinctive that, that this, this would be a more interesting story and, and these characters would become more interesting by being under this, this the pressure of this, this odd situation, which is which has just kind of landed on the village. You know, the, the, the key thing for me is that the girl who disappears and her family they're not from the village they they were visiting and so this is not a tragedy that anyone in the village feels personally it's not wounded any of them personally and yet they all feel it as a loss they all feel it as as some kind of awful thing that has happened in their in their midst and it never really goes away for them but at the same time it's not a visceral tragedy they're able to get on with their lives but they're also not able to to let go of what's happened one of the things that I walked away from after I read this book, more than anything, and, and you mentioned this, but I'm just wondering if you had um, anything more to say, uh, there were three things that I thought this was about. It was about time, loss, and change. But I circled time, and to me, this was mostly about time and time, how time affects our lives more than incidents, more than anything else. And I'm just wondering if you can talk about that. Yeah. I mean, by the time I finished the book, that was what it was about. It happened by mistake in a way. It was something I kind of tripped myself, cornered myself into. When you start writing a novel, you you kind of flounder around a lot at the beginning with different structures and different viewpoints and different kind of central protagonists. And, and I did that for a long time. And then I settled on this structure of I want it to take place over 13 years. I want each of those 13 years to be broken down into 13 months, which is a bit of a cheat, but there are 13 months in, in these years. And I want each month to be more or less the same duration on the page. And, and I just decided to do that. I thought, okay, that's great. I can do that. And off I went. And then I realized that there were two things that that, that forced me to do as a writer, which I've not really done before. And the first one was that I had to not do the thing that I think a writer has the instinct to do, where you, you dwell on the most dramatic incidents in your story. So, well, I mean, at the beginning of the book, the girl goes missing. And, you know, I, I probably had 50-odd pages about about her disappearance and the search and the police and, and all of that. You know, I had all of that material written from when I'd written the short story and when I was starting to work on the book. And then once I settled on the structure, okay, well, that happens in the very first month of the book, and I've got a page and a half to cover it. And then it's New Year's Eve, and then it's January, and it's a month since the girl disappeared, and I've already moved on. And then it's February, the, page, the next page. And that happened throughout the book. I kept having these incidents, which instinctively, as a writer, you would have kind of zoomed in on and kind of dwelt on for, for a dozen pages or so. But I had to keep moving forwards. And the quite exciting thing for me was to realize that is what time does. That's the effect that time has. We don't slow down our lives when something tragic or something momentous happens. The earth turns, the sun rises, we're on the next day, and we, we keep moving forwards. So that was the one thing. And then the other thing was that um, I had to think much harder than I've had to do before about who my characters were at various points in their lives. Because every time I came back to a character, they were two or three years older 
and sometimes they were 10 years older and I had to kind of think really hard about what that meant. I think I've written books before where you might see somebody in an early chapter and they're a teenager and then later on they're a parent, you know, and then later on they're old. I kind of, I've done that spread of time before and that's, that's not unusual in a, in a novel, but to kind of very methodically follow somebody across 13 years of their life. And each time you come back to them, you have to revise your idea of who, who they are now was a real challenge. And there were a few characters it was a particular challenge for. I, mean, I think maybe maybe Kathy, who at the start of the book has teenage children and her husband's recently died and she's kind of dealing with, with having young teenage children and, and dealing with all of that. And then by the end of the book, her children have left home several years earlier. She's on her own. She's in a new relationship. She's a completely in a completely different part of her life. And having to deal with that kind of methodical passing of time was was a real challenge and then by the time I got to the end it suddenly dawned on me that's what my book has become about it's about the passing of time and the kind of steady relentless passing of time and perspective that that can put human affairs you're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is John McGregor, author of the novel Reservoir 13. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? This is a little bit tangential, but there's a, an author called Amy Leach. Um, published a collection of essays a few years ago called Things That Are encounters with plants stars and animals and i think I, I think i read it when i was quite early on in this project and i was slightly nervous about the idea of nature writing and although i like the idea of nature writing a lot of it is quite boring and quite dry and seems to kind of suck the pleasure out of nature and amy leach's writing does very much the opposite i'm going to read you a page from an essay she's written about pea plants yeah, okay, so she's talking about when pea shoots first kind of come up and after the first few leaves, they, they start to develop the, the tendrils and, and they really get going. Peas are clocky children who become spoony adults. Once they grow long-limbed, they start to teeter because they possess more self than they can support. Then they grow madly wending tendrils to sweep the air for lattices, just as teetery marionettes will grow marionette cords to sweep the air for marionetteers. Yearning begets yearning. The pea plant yearns for a lattice, so it grows tendrils. Then every tendril, too, yearns for a lattice. Yearning draws tendrils out of the spindly green pea shoot, only to find itself compounded, elephantine. Tendril wending is swervy and conjectural. Like a dancer who cannot quite hear the music, pea tendrils are antic with inapprehension. Since there is no way for them to apprehend a lattice, the only direction to grow is yonder. Haywire personalities like peas, wobbly personalities with loose ends, iffy ends, result not from having no aim, no object in life, but from having an extrasensory object. What they want is beyond their powers of apprehension until they hold it in their acute green wisps. So their manner is vagabond. There's such a wildness in the, in the language, the, the kind of love of the language and the kind of deep meaning of each sentence. I just, it was just really exciting to, to discover that, that you could write like that. And I, I, it's not that I copied that 
style in particular, but something about the inner life of things that really inspired me. Can you read from something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or changed a lot from the first draft or something that you just like how it turned out. This is a scene from about halfway through the book, and there's a woman called Susanna who um, lives on her own in the village with her two children, and we don't know much about her, but she's opened a shop, and all of a sudden her ex-husband, who we didn't know about before now, has turned up. Susanna's ex-husband opened the shop door one afternoon and said hello as though he'd been invited. He seemed relaxed and open-handed, but there was something about the way he shut the door behind him. Susanna, he said, here you are, smiling broadly. He was a small man. He was. She nodded. She didn't trust herself to speak. She looked past him through the window and there was no one outside. People tended not to pass through on the street. He stayed between her and the door and he asked how she'd been. Her phone was on the shelf beside the till, and he was in the way of that as well. It was a small shop. She wanted to ask him to leave, but it didn't feel safe. She felt all her placatory instincts rushing back, her passive defences. But she kept her posture tall. She tightened her core. She told him she was well and asked what had brought him here. Susanna, relax. You seem tense. Come on. I'm not here to stir anything up. Sorry to disappoint you, but I'm not here to win you back. She breathed through the rush of irritation. She shook her head very slightly and he stepped towards her. I'm just here to see Ashley. It's been long enough. She needs a father. She shook her head again. Ashley's at school, she said. I can wait, he replied. This isn't what we agreed, she told him. You're not supposed to be here. He took another step towards her, but with his palms held out as though this would make it look like he was stepping back. Susanna, we didn't agree anything. The way he said the word, agree. She stood very still. Her phone was out of reach. The shop was small. She heard his breathing quicken as he stepped towards her. So tell me more about this and and why it was tricky. So this is the scene where we discover that the reason Susanna and her children moved to the village was because she was escaping... um, an abusive relationship um, and the tricky thing for me was that I wanted to make it clear how frightening the relationship had been and how how frightened she still is and that she has good reason to be frightened without dwelling on the violence and without kind of reveling in in, in, in the violence. Um, and so I didn't, although I wrote much longer versions of this scene and I did write descriptions of, of violence, they just, they felt really misplaced and, 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 and inappropriate. And, and they felt like they gave more kind of centrality and agency to, to, to the man than, than to Susanna. And so actually, the, the most important kind of part of the redrafting process of, of this scene was just to keep ending the scene earlier and earlier. I kept I kept kind of just cutting bits off the bottom until all you've got is her reaction as he moves closer to her. My thing as a writer more and more and more has become to trust the reader more and more and more and, and 
to realize that can trust the reader to understand what's happening without giving them kind of graphic explanations. Where do you write? Anywhere where there's a flat surface, to be, to be quite honest. I, I went through a long time of kind of having to have an official office and official work hours. And these days, you know, I've got, I've got kids, I've got another job, I've got messy week schedule. So I just, I, a coffee shop, uh, at home, in the library, on a train, if there's a flat surface and I've got a notebook, then I write for an hour or two. And that's that. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I cycle. I'd, I'd say that's the best thing I can do to really get away from writing and from thinking. I, I get out on a bike and a ride as far as I can, as fast as I can, for as long as I can. And it just empties my mind. I love it. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? There are two or three other writers who I've now kind of settled into a habit of, of exchanging very new work with. Um, and they're people who are very good at challenging the things that are wrong. And how have you dealt with rejection? Usually badly. Um, uh, I mean, I assume you mean in terms of writing rather than in one's personal life. Badly. I, I It's upsetting, it's embarrassing, it's humiliating. Um, hopefully, I then get over it and, and work out what it is that was wrong with that particular piece of writing and work to improve it or just put it away and get on with something new. But there's, you know, the initial instinct is just to be upset. And what is your favorite word? Banana. <laughs> I mean, I'm being slightly facetious, but I, 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 I like words that have got a nice kind of rhythm and a tang to them. And I like bananas. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was John McGregor, author of the novel Reservoir 13. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.